Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 145 of the Necessary Roughness podcast, presented by Last Word on Sports. I'm your host, Nicholas Donatic, for the 145th consecutive, so if you're waiting for someone else, I tend to think you might want to bet on something else. Hope you all having a fantastic week as we push into the middle of October here, and as we push into week six of the NFL season. We're having a pretty intriguing year so far. We've already got some storylines building and collapsing within the span of, you know, a month. We've got some big news to break down. Um, This one's going up on Saturday evening. I apologize. Usually I've been targeting Friday evening uh, lately for our episodes. But as I've said before, pushing in towards the last season into this one, things have changed for me work-wise. So just trying to get the content out for you guys as early as feasibly possible. Um, there's going to be a New York Yankee rant some point in this episode. I was debating opening with it and then telling you guys you could skip ahead uh, and just parse through the episode. But you know what? We'll go through. We'll jump right in, as usual, to my Standout 7. And then, you know what? We'll do it as a a little postscript to the Standout 7, pre-everyone's favorite part, my favorite part, yours, the pick'em portion of this week's episode. So let's go straight in to the standout seven. Let's get started with our favorite little shtick here in the one to three block is bigger story. So bigger story, the Kansas City Chiefs defending their home turf despite being down, I believe, 17, 14 or 17 in this game to the then one and three, now one and four, Josh McDaniels led Las Vegas Raiders or the Baltimore Ravens gutting it out and doing the dang thing, doing their job, so to speak, and finally holding on to win one at home. Let's get started with the former. Um, Kansas City should have won this game. I was kind of surprised how quickly the Vegas Raiders came out and punched them in the mouth. But then eventually, as they are inclined to do, the Chiefs remembered, oh wait, We're the Kansas City Chiefs. When we feel like it, we can be the best offense in football. When we feel like it, we can be unstoppable. And I would say Patrick Mahomes, 29-43, 292, and four touchdowns. At a certain point, he got to that level, you know. Uh, We saw some Jarek McKinnon, who I think was a a good addition when they brought him in last year, and I think he'll play a little bit more of a role as the season goes on. I was surprised to see very little Isaiah Pacheco in this game. I think it's a little bit of it's a regular season game, and Andy Reid doesn't want to show everything. I think he's got some plays. Him and Eric Bieniemy have some plays in their playbook for Pacheco in mind for big moments, for McKinnon in mind, for even Hardman out of the backfield here and there, and of course their lead back, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who didn't have the best game, but, you know, you walk away with a victory, you can't really be that angry. Um, this was a little bit of an odd one, and I am have to search through the notes, so to speak. It has been a long, long week. Um, we had the play pre-halftime, so Kansas City's kicker, the backup kicker, because Butker is hurt, shanks the field goal, obviously, you know, it is what it is, it was 17-0 with 9 minutes to half, then it was 17-7, and then we have a sack fumble, which would have given Kansas City the ball, which I think everyone watching, including you and including me, would have assumed it would have been 17-14 in all likelihood, at least 17-10, it winds up 20-10 at halftime after the roughing the passer, negates the strip sack, and I'm going to say this, I don't think, and we're going to talk um, roughing the passer and injuries and safety in a little bit here, 
I do not believe I have seen a roughing the passer call on a strip sack before. I tend to think when the quarterback is removed from the ball, usually the ref will, barring anything crazy, swallow the whistle to use the NBA terminology. And I was very surprised because I'm not certain that the referee that threw the flag saw the ball come out. At first, I didn't see the ball come out until I saw, well, a Kansas City Chief defender walking away with the football. Um, a little weird to me. I think there's a bar to to reach in order for it to be called a roughing the passer. Um, I saw a suggestion. I was listening to Barton Hahn on the radio. Shout out to Barton Hahn. Bart Scott and Alan Hahn. Uh, ESPN Radio in New York. No sponsorship, but shout out to them because they gave me this idea. And one of the callers was suggesting, well, not so long ago, we had two different penalties for face mask. We had the five yard and the 15. What if we implemented something similar with roughing the passer? And you know what? I think I can get behind that. If there's something egregious to the lower half, right? Which is the, the idea behind you're not allowed to hit the quarterback low was, in my opinion, the torn ACL injury for Tom Brady. That was the inspiration, right? Baseball has the Buster Posey rule for blocking the plate. This was a Brady rule, one of the many, as you may have seen throughout his time in New England. But no, in all seriousness, this was a protecting the QB with a a quote-unquote vicious or aggressive going for the knees, right? Was there intent to injure him? No. However, that is what happened. And it's been changed to now you'll see a D-lineman roll up on a QB's leg, and it's just... Like it's, you know, like he came out and hit him with a steel chair. Like he's lying on the ground expecting the call. And I do think some quarterbacks play it up more than others. I liked in the press conference, and this is rare for me to say this one involving Tom Brady. I liked when they asked Tom about the roughing the passer, and he said, I don't throw the flags. Referring to a late call in the Tampa Bay game, which we'll get to in a sec, um, which helped Tampa Bay retain possession, and go on to win a pretty closely contested game against an underrated Atlanta Falcons team. So, this was a weird Chief game, was the main thing to take away. Then you also have Devontae Adams randomly shoving what I thought was a fan, but it turned out was a credentialed media member. He didn't, and there was a defense made that I've heard that, oh, he didn't know who it was, it could have been any random person. I don't know what you're going to do to me. And it's like, dude, do you live in... In society? Like, are you a caveman? Like, you ever walk outside and, like, you're just walking, you know, you're walking by an apartment building and boom, the door opens. You don't run and slam the person that just opened that door. You're going to the grocery store, right? No, no, no. Not the grocery store. Automatic doors there. You're going to the bodega, right? Or you're going to a deli or a fast food joint and you go, you round blind corner to open the door. Boom! Someone opens the door out at you. Ah! And you punch them in the throat. Right? No, that doesn't happen, because you're a normal human being. So, look, as far as I know, there was not any injuries sustained by the person who was, uh, I mean, if we're going to use the textbook definition, I guess assaulted? It's a little far, but if the shoe fits, right? However, I would say this. If I was shoved in that manner by a man that I know had just brought home the bag, to use the the modern terminology, right, in the offseason, you bet your bottom dollar especially when he admitted guilt and apologized on social media, I'm getting something, right? I am getting a little chunk of change out of this thing if I'm him, right? Just put it out there. 
the bigger story before we even get into the nitty gritty has to be Baltimore. I detailed this last week and probably before as well. Baltimore has had big games early in the season so far, and they've been at home. They choked against Miami, right? They choked against Buffalo. Here they are against Cincinnati, who's not playing great. They need to bring home this win. If Cincinnati wins on their turf to take the lead over them in the division, with their remaining matchup being in Cincinnati, it's not looking good for MVP season Lamar Jackson. I'm using air quotes for that because he threw for a buck 75 and ran for 58 yards in one of their bigger games of the year so far, so that's not crazy. Um, either way, I don't think Baltimore played particularly poorly, I would say. Um, my main takeaways, I mean, there was just too much time, right? It winds up with two minutes left, and the opposing team has the ball, and I'm not going to lie to you, I thought the point-after-attempt by Cincinnati missed, and they showed replays. I wasn't the only one that thought that they missed. Uh, neither here nor there, Baltimore fan. You're still walking away with a W, but it came down to that last drive, and when you have, I would say, an above-average quarterback with two minutes on the clock, you are expecting, more often than not, you will win the game, and they did just that. Good on Baltimore. They've got the best kicker in the league. They've got one of the best quarterbacks in the league. They've got one of the best coaches in the league, though sometimes his aggressiveness goes crazy. Um, yeah, big win for them. It's got to be Baltimore. And particularly also, the Raiders were coming in 1-3. and three, Right? If the Raiders were 2-2 two and two and Kansas City was, you know, 2-2 two and two as well, maybe we could talk about it. 4-1 and one and 1-4 and four afterwards, it's not going to be them. Number two in the standout seven, am I more worried about those aforementioned Cincinnati Bengals or the Los Angeles Rams? And this one's kind of a spicy one. Usually we don't double dip, but I think this one is necessary. The LA Rams, we talked about the Bengals already, so I'll just jump to the Rams here. The LA Rams do not look good. I mean, you look at the stats, Stafford goes 67% completion percentage, 66.66666 to be completely accurate. Um, 308 yards passing, a touchdown and a pick. The running game was almost non-existent. Cooper Cup had a great game, as he is inclined to do. Tyler Higby looked all right. Allen Robinson still has not contributed much, if anything, as an L.A. Ram, and I don't know if this is a schematic thing. I don't know if this is a chemistry thing. If I'm being completely honest, I, I don't really know what the problem is because... I've seen other receivers not named Cooper Cup succeed in this Rams offense. So for people that want to say, oh, it's just it's just Stafford's got his favorite with Cup, right? Like, we've seen it with other QBs. We've seen Peyton Manning and Marvin Harrison, and Reggie Wayne comes in, and now, oh, everybody gets some. Brandon Stokely gets some. Dallas Clark gets some. You know, even the year where Tom Brady had the, you know, almost perfect season with Randy Moss, there were other players on that offense getting some burn, Right. They were contributing. You cannot have an offense centered solely, and this is a generalization, which is usually not the best way to do these things, but in a whole, or as a whole, rather, you cannot have an offense centered around one target. It's just not going to work. Eventually, they're going to catch on. There's a reason the Detroit Lions, with Matthew Stafford, and Calvin Johnson 
put up great stats for those two players, but didn't necessarily make any noise. And I wouldn't even say necessarily. They didn't make any noise when it came to being a successful team or contending for a Super Bowl or anything of that sort. So when it comes to the Rams, we've seen Robert Woods put up stats with this offense. We saw Odell Beckham put up stats with this offense. It is possible. Is it possible Allen Robinson is not the, the quote-unquote scheme fit they thought he was? Perhaps Robert Woods is a uh, he's smaller and shiftier than Allen Robinson, but this is a guy, and I love to talk about this to use the Chris Collinsworth here. Now here's a guy. Now here's a guy. When he was in Chicago, I could not get over how much people were showering him with praise, saying he's a top X receiver, top ten. Some would go crazy and say top five. Oh, if he had a QB. Oh, if he had a QB. I, look, I just don't see it. And will he turn it around? I'm sure he'll turn it around and have a relatively productive season. He's not going to be Kenny Galladay. If he is, I'm sorry, Rams fans. I live in New York. It's not a beautiful future. Is he going to be Michael Thomas? I don't think he's as good as Michael Thomas. You know what I mean? And I'm using that comparison as a big-bodied wide receiver. And Michael Thomas, I would say there's not a lot of receiving talent around him. But when Drew Brees was there, they were doing their best, right? Um... So the bigger story here, for me, is the L.A. Rams. Because the L.A. Rams are in a division where San Francisco's 3-2 and two and they've beaten you. The Cardinals are tied with you and Seattle is all of a sudden tied with you as well. Oh, by the way, they've scored the least points in the National Football Conference. The only teams with less points scored than them are Pittsburgh, who has made a quarterback change. The Colts, who have looked awful at times. Um, and are battling some injuries, and the Denver Broncos, who are getting clowned by the entire NFL. Albeit, Russell Wilson playing through an injury, which is news we kind of wish we had in advance, especially if you were somebody gambling on these things. But, in all seriousness, this Rams team has been a significant disappointment, with pretty much the exception being Cooper Cup's productivity. If you took Cooper Cup off this team, they might be 0-5. So... They really need to get something together. I am confident in Sean McVay. I think he's one of the better coaches in the NFL. Usually he's creative almost to a fault. He has a little bit of that Harbaugh aggressive to a fault in him. Um, I don't know how it's going to happen. Is it going to be more with the running game? I don't think so. I mean, they said, I believe Cam Akers won't go this week. He was not practicing, and they said that there's, quote, something they need to work out. I don't particularly know what that means, I won't really speculate because there's no reason to. I'm not going to go into, oh, is it a motivation thing? Is it a weight thing? Is it an injury thing off the field? I have no idea, right? Um, I will say this, though. If that's the case, are they interested in trading for a running back? Because, oh, by the way, the report came out just today that the Carolina Panthers, who are now without their former head coach, which we'll talk about, are listening to offers for Christian McCaffrey. Well, if you're listening... You might as well, if you're L.A. and you can somehow find a way to find the cap space, make a call. We also heard Sean McVay say that there's an open dialogue between either himself or the front office and Odell Beckham. The implication being from Beckham's side that he was not happy with the first offer that was made, if there was an offer made. And McVay is saying, well, that wasn't our final offer. Well... I mean, Odell Beckham back in this offense looking how he looked last year, which is a little bit of a jump, I'm not going to lie to you, because he did sustain a significant injury in that Super Bowl game. He was playing 
his heart out. He was playing probably one of the best games he's played in the last few years in that Super Bowl prior to injury. Will he be that same guy? I'm not sure. I am not sure. The bigger story's got to be the Rams. Um, to touch on the Cincinnati side of it, the only thing we really haven't mentioned is, I mean, the uh, the upcoming schedule, I guess, for Cincinnati. It gets a little bit easier. Um, they've got New Orleans. They've got Atlanta, who I just said is underrated. On Halloween, they're playing in primetime at Cleveland. Could be interesting. They've got Carolina, who's, as we said, on, our, on their second head coach. They've got a bye. They've got Pittsburgh. They've still got Kansas City later in the year. They've still got Tampa Bay later in the year. They've got Buffalo later in the year. And Baltimore again. Could they be looking at potentially a 10-7 season? Because there were a lot of hard ones. I'm not sure. But right now, more worried about the LA Rams than I am about the Bengals. And just as an aside here, since we're talking Bengals, I've seen a couple of interviews floating around with Joe Burrow, and I just want to say it's, you know, it's refreshing to see Joe. I mean, I've seen him in interviews here and there from his college days to where it's, oh, it's the swaggering Joe Burrow, right? It's talking about seeing his fashion and him being, you know, machismo confident and it's on top, on top, on top. This is a guy that lost the Super Bowl. This is a guy that had a, a pretty significant injury as a rookie in the NFL. And in some of his interviews, he's got a fair amount of perspective. I recommend you guys look him up. He was talking about sacks in the Super Bowl, and they were the interviewer brought up how he had been sacked more times in the Super Bowl than anyone had ever. And he mentioned that it wasn't all his offensive line's fault. He said, look through the tape. Some of those are third downs where it's on me. If I get sacked on third down, well, the drive was over if I threw it away anyway, so I will take the sack because I'm trying to make a play. And I think if you're a fan, you love to hear it. If you're a coach, I'm not sure. If you're an offensive lineman, I imagine you got to love to hear it too because the Bengals' O-line is getting raked over the coals pretty much for the last year plus, probably all the way to his rookie year because he sustained the injury behind that offensive line, which has since been retooled and rejiggered and things like that. But worth noting, pretty interesting. He also talked about concussions when they talked about Tua, which we'll get into in a little bit here. And he talked about how there are some games where he'd be hit and he wouldn't have concussion symptoms, but going back a few days after, he wouldn't necessarily remember parts of that game or he'd have things that blacked out in his memory. Um, just very interesting to hear a player that young who is, you know, I would say a star, superstar, not sure where that line would be, but a significant member of the NFL community, I would say, as a young player, um making those statements publicly. Pretty interesting to me. Number three in the standout seven, which is a bigger story, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers nearly losing at home to the Atlanta Falcons, their division rival, or the Green Bay Packers losing over in England to the New York football Giants. Bet you didn't think I got up early enough to watch that Giants game. You'd be partially right. Anyway, let's get started with Tampa Bay since we touched on them before. This game was remarkably close. For a game where Brady goes for 350, no interceptions. Um, I mean, their leading receiver was Leonard Fournette, so I guess the passing game was a little weird, but Godwin had 60 yards, Evans had 80 yards. They just couldn't put together touchdown drives, I guess. Mariota only goes for a buck 40 in this one, but he's also their leading rusher at 61 yards. Reminder... This is a game that the Falcons did not have Cordero Patterson, their leading weapon. Drake London, their number one pick wideout, or first round draft pick, I should say. Four catches for 35 yards. I mean, they did not have the weaponry to beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, yet 
here they were in the fourth quarter coming back against one of the best teams in the NFL. They're down 21 nothing entering the fourth quarter. It's 21-15. Like, that roughing the passer penalty was huge. Do I think this is a bigger story than the Green Bay one? No. However, I will say this. This shows, this coupled with what we've seen already from this Tampa Bay team against Kansas City, this Tampa Bay team is very vulnerable. Very vulnerable. Coming into the game with Kansas City, I thought, all right, well, Tampa Bay's defense is better than their offense. They give up 40 to Mahomes. I still think their defense is probably better than their offense, but part of that might have to do with health. This Tampa Bay team, I've alluded to it before, is giving me late career Peyton Manning Broncos vibes, where he's going to do enough, hopefully, but will it be enough if the defense can't fill in the gaps? I'm not sure about that. If you're a Buccaneer fan or if you're holding on to Buccaneers futures tickets, you know what I mean, like Super Bowl tickets in terms of gambling, I would consider... You know, not betting your car payment on that one. But over in beautiful old England, or I suppose, the stadium looks nice at least, the New York football giants, who were down at the half, 20-10, to 10, found a way to come back with their quarterback's hand bleeding, Saquon Barkley enduring some kind of a shoulder injury, unclear what happened there. Um, Jones fairly clearly did not have the same mobility as we're used to seeing him have. But the most important thing for the New York Giants in this game, Daniel Jones did not turn the ball over. That is how the New York Giants can win football games. Because it's relatively clear at this point, at least to me, let me know what you guys think, comments section, social media, at Nick Donatic, N-I-K-D-O-N-A-D-I-C, as usual, you know the spiel. It's relatively clear to me that this New York Giants defense is good enough to keep them in a fair amount of games, right? It's also clear to me that Saquon Barkley and the dedication to the running game that the Giants have is unlike they've had in the last handful of seasons. They're willing to give Barkley the ball. They're willing to let him go out there and do his darndest to carry this team. Now, I've heard people talk about the narrative going into this game. Well, look what Jones did without his top four receivers. Wandale Robinson's a rookie. Kadarius Toney hasn't really shown us all that much. I think he's a good player, but he's been hurt relatively constantly in his year plus of action. Kenny Galladay is a non-factor. Who am I missing? Shepard, who went down against the Cowboys? That's a decent, decently impactful injury where you could say you can expect production from Shepard, right? But Shepard isn't a star receiver. The leading receiver for the Giants in this game, and I've been saying this for as long as Daniel Jones has been a Giant, was Darius Slayton, because Darius Slayton is the only receiver, the only receiver that Daniel Jones has shown some semblance of chemistry with in his time as the Giants' starting quarterback. Slayton kind of burst on the scene that first year when they were buddy-buddy because, presumably, Jones was taking reps with the twos when Manning was still there and who was on the... Backup squad. Well, Darius Slayton. So when he goes into the starting lineup, he's like, oh, well, oh, this is the guy that always catches the ball at practice. Nice. Well, Darius Slayton once again made an appearance in this game. Six catches for 79 yards. They were trying to trade him in the offseason. I think there's a fair amount of talent there. I don't understand. They go out and draft Tony. All right, fair enough. Tony looks like a pretty decent player when he's on the field. They draft Robinson. I haven't seen nearly enough out of him. 
You draft a wide receiver in back-to-back first rounds after you re-sign Sterling Shepard and you sign Kenny Galladay. Are you planning an air raid offense here? Like, what is going on? This team does not have the talent at the quarterback position to where you need to have two first-round picks in back-to-back years along with two multi-year extensions, or acquisition in Galladay's case, at the wide receiver position. It just doesn't make sense. It it doesn't make sense to me at all. Anyway, we were talking about the Packers, sorry. The thing that I take away from the Packers in this one is, for some reason, they're passing... Well, I know the reason. Their passing game does not look up to snuff, and it's because they don't have nearly the talent at wide receiver. Um, I mean, Randall Cobb's their leading wide out here at 99 yards. He played a good game. Aaron Jones played a pretty good game on the ground. I'm surprised they didn't run the ball more, if I'm being honest. I mean, you take a look at their two backs here, 19 carries for 97 yards. That's pretty good. And considering they had a 10-point lead at halftime, play calling kind of played a weird role. Um, I don't know. I don't think the Green Bay defense played particularly poorly. I mean, they gave up a comeback, but that's bound to happen. They gave up 27 to the New York Giants, which is not tremendous. But I wouldn't call it an awful game. Um, From the Giants' perspective, you should be excited, but you also have to realize the Packers walked down the field and were ready to tie this game if not for two great plays near the goal line with batted balls at the tail end of this one. The play calling also while we're here, eh, you know, Kafka, I believe, still on the play calling duties for them. You have the ball at, like, your two-yard line, and you can run the ball forward. I mean, Saquon Barkley's got, like, two fumbles in, like, four-plus seasons. He just doesn't put the ball on the turf. Maybe it's the injury. They don't want to give him the ball. Fair enough. They're, like, kneeling it out and then running out of their back of their end zone with the punter. It's just kind of weird to me. I know that's become kind of a in vogue thing to do now to take safeties on purpose ever since the Super Bowl way back when in the Harbaugh Bowl, but it, the whole thing's kind of weird. I think the Giants almost botched this one in true Giants fashion, but that wasn't the question. The question was, what's the bigger story, the near loss or the actual loss? And for me, believe it or not, it was the Tampa Bay near loss. Number four in the standout seven, let's talk about Matt Rule. Um, what is there really to say? Matt Rule had coached 38 NFL games, and he was 11-27. and 27. He went 5-11 and 11 in his first year. You take a look at that Carolina Panther team back in 2020. Teddy Bridgewater at QB goes for 3,700 yards, 15 touchdowns, 11 picks. Uh, P.J. Walker, I believe formerly of the XFL, um, starts and wins one game, throws for 368, one touchdown, five picks. I mean, Christian McCaffrey played three games. He walked in thinking he'd use Christian McCaffrey, didn't get that chance. Last year, Sam Darnold starts 11 games. Cam Newton starts five, looks washed. Cam Newton, you know, eh, let's not kick a man when he's down. It's okay. Everybody, eventually, father time catches up. Sam Darnold, reclamation project, goes in there, doesn't look good either. Again, McCaffrey plays seven games. Here we are, 2022, right? We're five games in. Baker Mayfield, Reclamation Project Part 2. Uh, hasn't looked that great. Christian McCaffrey through five games has 72 carries and 26 catches, which is a fair amount of touches, you know. He's here. All right. But my thing would be, Matt Rule, and the, correct me if I'm wrong, Panther fan. Trust me, like I said, in the comments section, if there is one where you're listening, or social media, all social media, as I always say, Nick Donatic, N-I-K-D-O-N. A-D-I-C. 
Um, was this a Matt Rule thing only? Like, was Matt Rule the one that said, yeah, well, Teddy Bridgewater was our quarterback. What's our answer now? We're going to get Sam Darnold for a late-round draft pick. Like, that was his idea exclusively? All right. And and then he went into this year thinking, all right, well, it worked last time, so let's get Baker Mayfield. I mean, the Baker one you could at least win me over on, but Sam Darnold did not look like anything with the Jets. I still think Baker might be an NFL quarterback somewhere in there, but hope is fading day by day. Um, and now, obviously, he's gone down with the injury. Matt Rule gets his pink slip. Do I think Matt Rule showed enough to where he should get another lick uh, or another kick at the can, rather, in the NFL as a head coach? Not nearly. It's it's not close to close. Um, I mean, he was the head coach at Baylor for three years. He was the head coach at Temple for four years, and now he's the head coach at Carolina for two and a quarter. If the trend holds, his next job he will hold for under two years uh, before leaving for another job or getting a pink slip yet again. Um, I mean, at one point, he was a Giants assistant offensive line coach for, for a year, so that's cool, I guess. Um, weird that nothing parlayed out of that, but he, neither here nor there. What do I have to say about Matt Rule? Well, they weren't good. But here's the intriguing part. Would you say that the Carolina Panthers were good before he got there? I mean, they were 5-11 and in Ron Rivera's last year, in which he got fired and Perry Fuel took over. And they had Cam Newton, who got injured, I believe, and then Kyle Allen started 12 games. The year before that, they go 7-9 and under Riverboat Ron. Cam Newton starts 14 games. I mean, 3,400 yards, 24 touchdowns, 13 picks, not bad. Christian McCaffrey goes for about 1,900 all-purpose. That's pretty darn good. But that's still an under 500 record. Last time they made the playoffs was 2017. They lost in the first round. I mean, they moved on from Riverboat Ron, who I would say is clearly a pretty good NFL head coach. Um, I don't know, Panther fan. I don't know what to tell you. It's a shame that this season is already in the dumps because I honestly thought with Baker maybe they'd have a chance if McCaffrey could stay healthy. And we've had some murmurings you've seen about, oh, McCaffrey mispracticed this day, he mispracticed that day. Then you have, well, Baker is going to have the high ankle sprain. Yeah, you know what? Let's just cut bait and let's see what happens. I, I get it. I truly do. It's a shame, but we've seen it in other places. Interesting one here for number five. There was an NBC report citing at least one NFL executive, I believe it was more than one, um, ripping the NFL's uneven implementation and enforcement of safety rules and calls. And this is one that was intriguing just this past week because the New York Jets wind up blowing out the Dolphins. At one point in this game, I believe it was 19-17. to 17. Yeah. And it's worth noting, Teddy Bridgewater throws one pass in this game and then is taken off for a concussion evaluation. And he was deemed to not have a concussion. However, due to the new addition of the protocol, which I believe we discussed last week, but if not, I'll bring it up here. They added ataxia as a potential symptom or warning sign to keep out, to keep an eye on, which I believe, to my knowledge, from what I remember reading, had to do with possible motor function impairment, which you presumably wouldn't put someone on the field with if they had that. Um, maybe some cognitive impairment, some balance issues. Now, I have a couple of things to say about this. 
Um, and they all come from a non-medical perspective. I've never had a concussion. You know, I never played organized football. I'll tell you that from the outset. If if after 145 episodes that turns you off, then I'm I'm sorry to let you know these things. Um, however, does this mean that there were trained medical professionals evaluating people for head injuries and not paying attention to their lack of balance? Because if so, I would say as as a a plebeian a mere simpleton that those medical professionals should not be employed to do the job that they were doing. Because if you're evaluating someone for a brain injury and they have balance issues, I tend to think they might have a little bit of a brain injury. All right, let's move on to the next one. How about motor skill impairment? Well, I mean, considering the job that's being done, particularly in this situation by Teddy Bridgewater and or Tua or any of these other QBs being treated or evaluated for concussions, I I tend to think it might be fairly easy to tell if there's some impairment going on there. I mean, we've heard the stories from way back when of, oh, just throw it to the one in the middle. I'm seeing triple, whatever. Or remember in the Super Bowl way back when, um, the Denver Broncos running their running back out there, even though he was having a migraine to the point that he said he couldn't see. Okay, well, we're leaving those days behind, and, you know, for better or for worse, it's a great story, but it's quite dangerous. Um, It's intriguing to me that this had to be written into the rule. For some reason, trained medical professionals were not evaluating these things, or they were just bypassing them, or, you know, and this is something I kicked around. I was discussing this rule with my dad when we were talking about the concussion thing, particularly as Teddy got hurt, and... As somebody that watches combat sports, right? I like UFC. I dabble in boxing. If you walk up to someone after they get kicked in the head and they're TKO'd, they may have no clue what's going on. However, maybe 15, 20 minutes, half hour later, they might be back at it. You look at somebody like Kamaru Usman, who was knocked out by a head kick from Leon Edwards, and he said he took a two-hour nap. You could see him on the broadcast. He, He was sitting up. He stood up. He walked out. The fans acknowledged him. He doesn't remember a damn thing, according to him. So, it's one of those things where when is the evaluation taking place, and is it a pass-fail, or is it a sliding scale? Because, theoretically, the majority of people, if they sustain a hard hit where their head slams on the ground or something like that, they're going to have some kind of an impact. So, my point being... Teddy Bridgewater, was he evaluated? He was obviously, I assume, evaluated immediately. Was he reevaluated at halftime? Was he reevaluated in the third quarter? Or is it you are evaluated if there is any semblance of a symptom, we're ruling you out? I'm completely fine with that, by the way. But I'm intrigued to know how it works. Because the first time they did it, they cleared Tua and he was not okay. But he came back and played well enough, right? You couldn't tell in the second half. He wasn't throwing the ball to somebody that's not there. However, when you saw him go down again against Cincinnati, it was clear that this was an issue. Just intrigued. And this extends, as we talked about safety, this extends into the roughing the passer thing that we're talking about, where you see Brady go down, they throw the flag immediately, and they wind up finding Brady... Then you see Mahomes get slammed down. No, but who cares? You see Lamar Jackson get slammed down, which sometimes people need to realize there are different rules being applied outside of the pocket versus inside of the pocket. 
As of now, the NFL's protections for the QB doesn't really extend outside the pocket, barring a late hit or a face mask or a horse collar, um, which would be extended to any player at that point. It's, it's intriguing, to say the least, that you have NFL executive or executives speaking out against these things because, look, to be completely honest, we all want the players to be fine. However, if you're from an NFL business perspective or from a team perspective, you want your best players on the field. So there's competing interests at work here. The one that needs to prevail, and I think hopefully will prevail, is the sound, independent medical mind who's saying this guy could be in danger. There are some players... And I, I hate to bring it back because I, I know you guys either love or hate when I drag into other sports. And like I said, there will be a Yankee rant later. But to go into the combat field, there are guys that can take a punch like crazy, right? We've seen it. You don't need to know in-depth boxing or UFC or whatever. Somebody can get pounded in the face and just walk it off, not even go down. Somebody can get grazed on the temple and have their lights completely shut out. So is there a threshold here? I think it'd be intriguing for someone with a little bit more reach than me to be completely you know, humble about it and honest about it to grab hold of somebody high in the NFL's division that is investigating this or formulating this and or perhaps talk to the independent medical professional who was dismissed by the Dolphins on, you know, after the Tua thing and talk to them. See what they have to say. What did you see that all of a sudden, hmm, you know what, I think he's fine and then he wasn't fine. Talk me through it. Is this a common occurrence? Because football, tackle football, is played at the collegiate, high school, and even lower level sometimes. So is this something that's being misdiagnosed rampantly? Are there people walking around with concussions and they have no idea? I don't know. Food for thought. Number six in the standout seven is another spicy one. Um, Though, more palatable, I would say. Uh, The weird week that was... For the Washington not-football team, the Washington Commanders. I kind of missed the football team name, in case that wasn't abundantly clear. So, the Washington Commanders lost their game in Week 5, right? They lost to the Tennessee Titans, who were a pretty darn good football team last year. Who knows, they might be a pretty darn good football team this year. The Commanders worked their way down the field, matriculated, had a chance to win this game late, and Carson Wentz threw an interception. Up until that point, Carson Wentz was 25 of 37, 359 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. De'Ami Brown had two touchdowns in this game. McLaurin had five catches for 76. Curtis Samuel had six catches for 62. I believe they were without their leading tight end, Logan Thomas, in this game. So, in the postgame, Ron Rivera was asked, what separates the commanders from the other teams in their division that are pulling ahead of them? Namely, the Philadelphia Eagles, who might be one of the best teams in the NFL, the New York Giants, one of the surprising stories of the NFL year, the Dallas Cowboys, who are a talented team battling without their QB, right? Okay. So what does he say? He says, quarterback. Ron. Ron, your QB just threw for 350 against a team that was, I believe, the one seed last year in Tennessee. Did he play perfectly? No. But, I mean, Ron, dude, 
one pass at the end of the game and you're sitting at two and three instead of one and four. And all of a sudden you're you're giddy. Then the commanders go out and win another snoozer Thursday night football game. Carson Wentz goes 12 of 22 for 99 yards. Gets outpassed by Justin Fields, by the way. Two to one almost. Fields goes for a buck 90 through the air. Tremendous, I know. Um, there was a weird discussion about the miss, potential missed read on that last play by Fields. He had the running back. I'm not here to discuss the X's and O's of that. I'm here to discuss the fact that after the game, Ron Rivera went on to lash out at reporters for potentially discussing the fact that there was a report that he didn't want Carson Wentz. Didn't want him. And insinuating, well, you're lashing out at him after he throws for 350, and now your team's putting up 12 points against the Chicago Bears in primetime. I tend to think you're not happy with the way things are going. And he lashes out and storms out of the press conference. Uh, Mind you, through six games, Carson Wentz has 1,500 passing yards, give or take 11. Uh, Take 10 touchdowns to six interceptions. Add in, I believe he has... Yes, one lost fumble of six fumbles. Six fumbles is kind of preposterous. However, he's only lost one, so we'll call it seven turnovers. That's Daniel Daniel Jones's, yeah. So, that's pretty bizarre to me. I mean, if I was Ron Rivera, head football coach of the then-Washington football team, soon to be now Washington Commanders, I would have wanted Matt Ryan, which is something I floated over a year ago. Um, If you're taking character issues out of it, I certainly would have wanted Deshaun Watson, if that's something that was doable or palatable, uh, considering the Daniel Snyder situation, which we'll get to in a minute, because I did say the team situation in the week. Um, I tend to think that wouldn't fit in, though then again, with the cloud of Snyder, maybe it would have fit. I would want Baker Mayfield. However, Carson Wentz did lead a team last year to within one game of the NFL playoffs, which is not bad. Honestly, it's he's not the worst quarterback in the NFL. I mean, last year he threw 27 touchdowns to seven interceptions. I, I mean, he played every game. He had a 62% completion percentage. The passing yardage was not tremendous, but Jonathan Taylor burst on the scene and took over, right? I mean... What's going on here? He threw for more yards last year with a similar number of touchdowns as he did when he was in the MVP race. Granted, that was in 13 games. But we're going to talk about that. I think it's very bizarre that Ron would lash out after being the one that caused the controversy. And then I believe he issued an apology to Carson, to which Carson probably said, hey, dude, I'm used to it at this point. Philly didn't want me, even after I helped them win the Super Bowl for the first time in forever, or the first time literally ever, rather. Let me rephrase that. Uh, Then Indy didn't want me because I had a bad game against Jacksonville, and, well, all right. Now Washington doesn't want me. How many more franchises are there? Is he the next starting quarterback of the Carolina Panthers? I mean, my goodness. What's going on in D.C.? And that's not even getting into the real weird stuff going on there. We don't go down that road. Anyway, speaking of the footballers, Reportedly, Daniel Snyder, owner of the team, who's has a bit of a contentious relationship 
reportedly, with Roger Goodell and or some of the other owners after many things that have been disclosed and investigated and are still being disclosed and investigated about the team and things involving cheerleaders and leaked emails with John Gruden and a whole bunch of stuff, um, hired a private investigator to dig up dirt on other owners in the NFL, on, I believe, the NFL itself and or Roger Goodell. I'm not 100% sure on that. I will say this. Some of the things that have been leaked, obviously, involving Daniel Snyder are truly despicable. And I can understand why the other owners would not want this person associated with the brand of the NFL. 110% I understand. However, I mean, Robert Kraft was at, like, a happy ending massage. And nobody says bleep about him. Right? Like, this is not a high morality group. This is a group of rich people that own football teams for grown adults, right? That's just the way it is. It's it's not exactly... If you look into the players, right? People like to think there's not a high morality thing there. I think the, the bad apples overshine, or overshadow rather, the relatively good people in the NFL, because I think there are a fair amount of them. However, the same could be said about owners... And I tend to think Daniel Snyder has almost certainly, through his private investigator, uncovered a fair amount of things about other owners that are going to keep him safe in the league. I think he saw what happened to Donald Sterling, who also had things come out about him, and he's thinking, well, you know what, I don't want that to happen to me, so I am going to get what's called an insurance policy. And I don't mean a literal one from, you know, Liberty Mutual or Progressive or whoever. No, 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 no. My insurance policy is going to be information. So if anything comes out about me, it will come out about you. Fascinating. The, one of the most interesting things to happen. One of the most interesting weeks in Washington football since they changed their name from the name redacted to the football team. Interesting things just don't happen there. This is the one. Wow. What a week that was. Let's get to some notes here before I get into the rant, before we get into the pick'em portion. Um, what else do we have down here? We talked about Russell Wilson. I'll give you the Adam Schefter spiel in its entirety. Broncos quarterback Russell Wilson played Thursday night against the Colts and three-quarters of the previous game against the Raiders while battling a partially torn lat near his right shoulder. That would be his throwing shoulder, by the way, according to sources. Wilson suffered the injury in the beginning of the second quarter of the loss to the Vegas Raiders during a game in which he threw two touchdowns and ran for another. Doctors diagnosed the injury in the days leading up to the game against the Colts. Wilson did not practice Wednesday, one day before the game. He was listed as questionable with a shoulder strain. He is not expected to need surgery. He is expected to be ready to play in their next game Monday night against the Chargers, though he will not be 100% as doctors believe the injury will linger. Uh, on the injury front also, T.J. Watt's return was delayed by a second injury. Uh, Rashad Penny of the Seattle Seahawks is done for the year. Uh, Baker Mayfield, as we said, out a few weeks with a high ankle sprain. And Mike Williams, excuse me, Marcus Williams of the Baltimore Ravens is on injured reserve. Don't believe there's too, too much from other notes to go. We could talk about Detroit and how they laid the egg that we all knew they would. But there's no need. We could talk about Buffalo and doing what we thought they would do. There's no need. We could talk about Jet fans taking a victory lap over beating a third-string quarterback. But there's no need. In the meantime and in the between time, 
Before we get into the pick'em portion of this week's episode, let's talk about the New York Yankees. Yeah, it's probably in the description. I mentioned it earlier and you knew it was coming if you've been listening to the show for a while. I talk about it all the time how I'm a New Yorker and yada yada yada. Um, so the New York Yankees are currently down two games to one to the Cleveland Guardians, formerly known as the Cleveland Name Redacted. Um, and they lost a game which was gift-wrapped. It, they, they were out-hit by the Guardians. However... It didn't matter because when the Yankees made contact with the ball, it left the stadium. Aaron Judge found a way to stop striking out long enough to hit a home run. Um, Bader ran into one, making people briefly forget about how well Jordan Montgomery pitched for the Cardinals, helping them win their division. Uh, Oswaldo Cabrera, who's been relatively big spark for them late in the year, I guess you could say, ran into one as well. And then, in the ninth inning, the Yankees ran into their Achilles heel. Aaron Boone making decisions. Yep, you heard that correctly. In this game, Severino goes five and two-thirds. He grits it through, because honestly, in the first two innings, he looked he looked like he was going to get knocked out of this one. The Guardians put up one apiece, and they were hitting the ball all over the yard. However, Sevy buckled down, made it into the sixth inning, almost snuck away with a quality start. Okay, fair enough. Trevino comes in. Lou Trevino, excuse me, not Trevino. Lou Trevino comes and gets out of the inning. Okay. Lewisky gets you two outs. Fair enough. They go to Wandy to finish the inning. Okay. He finishes the eighth. Okay. He starts the ninth. And things go haywire. And by haywire, I mean the New York Yankees were supposed to have game one, then a day off, game two, then a day off, then games three and four in Cleveland with the between 2 and 3 being a travel day, which is a fairly common thing in baseball. Then Game 5 with no travel day, the day following Game 4. So, with the day off between 1 and 2, which is abnormal, they did not have one between 4 and 5, which would be more traditional. So, they had that day off. It was a beautiful day outside in New York. Nothing to do, no game to play. Then, the rain came. On the day they were supposed to play, and they wound up taking that other off day. So now they're playing back-to-back. Why is that significant? Well, if you're a fan of other sports than football, you recognize that the concept of resting and fatigue and things like that are highly, highly prioritized in certain sports. We see it with load management in basketball, which is... It's kind of a problem in the NBA, but it depends on what team you're a fan of and it depends on where you're trying to buy tickets honestly there should be a bit of a kickback if you're buying tickets to see the lakers and lebron is wearing a suit and sitting in the front row Um, but that's just me so we come into this game it is five to three bottom of the ninth inning and the new york yankees master plan the new york yankees with a what 200 million dollar payroll at or around their plan is well We will ask the aging Wandy Peralta, in our infinite wisdom, to go for two and a third. Um, no. No, I don't think that'll work. Now, he's not 37 years old. He's just 30. But I I just don't believe that was a wise decision. And I don't know if it's an analytics department thing. I don't know if it's a a pitching coach thing. I am not 100% certain who made this suggestion to Aaron Boone. 
what I do know, though, is that he is the one that then went and made the decision to go with this. So, the intriguing part becomes, not only has Wandy Peralta pitched in both of the other games of the series, right? But no, it doesn't matter because, it, you know, it doesn't matter if he's pitching back-to-back days, right? No, that doesn't matter at all. He only threw 15 pitches the other day. Fair enough. You're not wrong. Well, the team's carrying two lefties. Well, you got Lucky out there. Well, don't worry. He's playing on his Game Boy, just hanging out. Or maybe he's doing commercials for, uh, you know, Manscaped with that mustache he's rocking. Nothing against Lucas Lucky, But clearly he's not there to pitch. They just didn't warm him up. They don't bother. Anyway, so I digress. The team then goes, well, we got a lot of guys out there in the bullpen. You know what? We're going to go to Clark Schmidt. A kid who spent quite a bit of his development with the team as a starting pitcher. And we're going to go to him in the middle of the inning. Now, this is a pet peeve of mine. I'm not a relief pitcher. But in my infinite wisdom, or finite wisdom if you will, from watching way too many baseball games and dedicating way too much of my time to a team that won't win at all because, well, see the rest of this discussion. They go to a kid in who's not used to being out of the bullpen, though he's done it this year. With men on base, which is already an uncomfortable situation, even if you are a career reliever. And they leave players out there like, oh, I don't know, the all-star closer they have, Clay Holmes. Uh, or maybe uh, somebody like Miguel Castro, who they put on the roster to pitch out of the bullpen. Okay, well, they go to, they go to Schmidt, and the predictable thing happens, he blows the game, as is what happens when you make a bad decision. Now, here's the intriguing part. In game two of this series, the Yankees and the Guardians went to extra innings. And with a clean inning, the Yankees went to Jamison Tyone, who, that's right, class, had never pitched out of the bullpen. So, why? The The inclination is what? You, you put him on the roster, presumably as a, a fourth starter, I thought, or you have Domingo Herman out there, who has pitched out of the bullpen, you have Schmidt, who has pitched out of the bullpen. With a clean inning, you go to Tyone, who has no bullpen experience. He gets some rough luck with some balls in play, which, to be quite honest, the Guardians have had some decent BABIP luck, if you will, batting average on balls in play. They've had some soft shots. The Yankees' defense, in my opinion, as someone who's watched a lot of Yankees this year, is vastly overrated. Um, neither here nor there. So they wouldn't go to Schmidt the other day in a tie game. right? In a tie game, nobody on base... They would not go to him. They did not think he was the guy. They waited for Tyone to blow the game via some bad luck and his own doing, and then they went to Schmidt. All right, so Schmidt's the low man on the totem pole. That's okay. Young kid, he understands. He came in, did his best, whatever. So now today, in a situation where you have the lead in a pivotal Game 3, a swing game. This is a five-game series, for those of you who are not baseball fans. It is one-to-one. When you win Game 3, usually... You go on to win the series, not 100% of the time, but it's something you want to do, you know what I mean? To paraphrase the immortal Joe Girardi, it's not what you want, this is what you want. What you don't want is to bring in Clark Schmidt in a high-pressure situation, pushing through the meat of the order of the opposing lineup, when you wouldn't bring him in in pretty much the same spot of the order in a tie game. Just, Just how many days ago? Oh, that's right, just one day ago. 
Well, it's almost like you're flying by the seat of your pants. Now, this is an organization in a sport particularly that preaches and preaches and preaches analytics and data and adhering to the best matchups and yada, 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 yada. So I don't really know how to wrap my head around what happened other than maybe the analytics team went to sleep when it was 5-3. Maybe, maybe they didn't make the trip to Cleveland. I mean, I know it's pretty far, New York to Cleveland. You certainly couldn't drive that. No, of course not. There weren't billboards about moving to Ohio up along the highway by where I live. No, of course not. Not saying I live right around the corner from Ohio, but you get my point. It's bizarre to me that you see such high-level importance for these decisions, and you just can't, and you being me, and possibly you listening, as a fan or as a viewer, you can't comprehend the rationale. And it's one of those things where you notice it immediately. This is in 2020 hindsight. I was waiting to record this episode, perhaps because I saw this coming. Because it was going to be just a little footnote where I say, oh, the Yankees are up 2-1. to one. Look at that. Go Yankees tomorrow. Let's see if they can wrap it up. Let's see if it's a great weekend for New York sports. The Yankees and, and the Rangers are back in action, right, in hockey. And the Giants and uh, yada, yada, yada. No. No, no, no. Because deep, deep within the recesses of my mind, I felt the blown game. Now, going back to what I said before, after the game, Aaron Boone simply said, well, you know, we didn't have homes available today. What? Excuse me. What? That doesn't really make sense to me. So, so, alright, late in the year they said he had some, some, what was it, shoulder soreness? It wasn't dead arm, but it was fatigue, shoulder fatigue, there you go. And you need your shoulder to pitch a baseball. That tends to make sense. But if he's in a situation where he is your go-to guy, correct? There's no there's no Ron Marinaccio, right? There's no Michael King. There's no Chad Green. There's none of those guys. So I'm going to go back and say this, and this might be an unpopular take. Aroldis Chapman has not looked great in the tail end of this season as a New York Yankee. But he asked the team prior to a workout if he was going to be on the playoff roster and they said we can't guarantee that so he left is that a good thing to do as a teammate no it's a bad look of course it's a bad look is he going to be out of the league next year of course not he's a Roldis Chapman so if you didn't have someone to turn to in this spot why didn't you just bite the bullet and tell the guy hey you know what we can guarantee you a spot why don't you show up or how about this one why don't you lie to the guy I know the teams, no, no employer would ever lie to an employee, especially in professional sports. It just wouldn't happen. See, loyalty and honesty is what, no, it's the money. The money is what matters. So if you tell him, yeah, you got to show up and then you don't put him on the roster. Yeah, he's mad, but you're not re-signing him anyway. And if he looks decent, all right, maybe you have an experienced person to turn to. Granted, he's experienced at blowing games, but you have an experienced person to turn to who is not a converted starter pitching out of the bullpen a little bit here and there in the biggest game, in the biggest moment. Or you could just bring in your all-star closer who pitched the day before. Hmm, which decision shall I make based on the fact that I just spent the last six-plus minutes talking about it? I think you know which one. That'll bring us to the pick'em portion. Of, I guess that'll be number seven in the standout seven, by the way. That'll bring us to the pick and portion 
of this week's episode, and we're going to get started. No London action this week. The Baltimore Ravens are heading to New Jersey for a Super Bowl rematch two decades in the making. The Ravens going to be without wide receiver Rashad Bateman with a foot, guard Ben Cleveland with a foot injury as well, and outside linebacker Justin Houston with a groin. Doubtful, running back Justice Hill with a hammy. For the Giants, they're going to be without Kenny Galladay with a knee, Kadarius Toney with a hammy, two DBs, Tony Jefferson with a foot, Jason Pinnock with an ankle, excuse me, three DBs, and Cordell Flott with a calf. Doubtful, pass rusher Aziz Ojolari with a calf as well. Questionable, tight end Tanner Hudson with an illness, wide receiver Wandale Robinson with a knee, and D-lineman Leonard Williams with a knee. Um, this Giants team has way too many injuries for me to seriously think. And the Ojolari, look, I ripped the passing game before. Galladay's not going to be much. You're going to miss Tony. You might miss Robinson. Leonard Williams is huge, and Aziz Ojolari is huge when you're facing Lamar Jackson. Could I see the Giants pulling off an upset? It's not impossible. However, I would say it's improbable. Give me Baltimore on the road. And let me just throw in here as an addendum. Last week we had a little bit of a uh, speed through on the injury portion of the injury, you know, the pick'em portion rather. The injury report portion, I should say, of the pick'em segment on the show. Thank you for bearing with me last week. Timing was a little rough. You know, I had a lot of work last weekend, but here we are getting it done, doing our thing. And our next 1 o'clock kick is an AFC South rematch already? The Jacksonville Jaguars head to Lucas Oil to take on the Indianapolis Colts. Didn't we see this game a few weeks ago? The Jaguars going to be without wide receiver Marvin Jones Jr. with a hammy, as well as D-lineman Falorunzo Fatukasi with a quad. Is that a second Fatukasi? Do we have two Fatukasis in the league now? What are the odds of that? Questionable, wide receiver Zay Jones with an ankle, D-lineman Devon Hamilton with a foot, and linebacker Foye Olakun with a calf. The Colts, and these are huge, are going to be without running back Jonathan Taylor with an ankle, running back Naheem Hines with a concussion, D-lineman Quiddy Pay with an ankle, and Shaq Leonard at a linebacker with a, quote, concussion, nose, and back. Questionable, two DBs, Tony Brown with a concussion, and free safety Julian Blackman with an ankle. Now, this is not a make-or-break game, right? I, I debated calling it that. They're 2-2-1, two, 2-3-1 two and one. Two, three and one is not that awful of a record to where they'd be completely out of it, right? If they were 0-5, maybe I could get away with saying that. However, I am honestly contemplating taking the Jaguars in this game. The Jaguars looked so much better than the Colts in their first matchup, it was almost unfathomable to me that somehow Matthew Stafford could go under 200 yards with 30 attempts, three interceptions in that game. Almost unfathomable to me. Trevor Lawrence, no turnovers in that game, two touchdowns. James Robinson looked good on the ground. You know what? I'm doing it. I am going to regret it. It will almost certainly be wrong, as it was last week when I picked the Lions, but I am taking the Jaguars on the road to beat Indianapolis for the second time in about a month. Next, we've got the Bill Belichick Bowl. The New England Patriots head to Cleveland to take on the Cleveland Browns. Patriots going to be without wide receiver Nelson Aguilar with a hammy, linebacker Josh Uche with a hammy as well, and corner Jonathan Jones with an ankle. 
Mac Jones, getting to the questionable side, is questionable with an ankle injury. Running back Damian Harris with a hammy. Wide receiver Jacoby Myers with a knee. Tight end Jonu Smith with an ankle. Two D linemen, Lawrence Guy with a shoulder and Christian Barrymore with a knee. And finally, linebacker Raekwon McMillan with a thumb. The Browns going to be without Denzel Ward at corner. Huge injury with a concussion. Offensive lineman Joe Haig with a concussion as well. And DN Jadavian Clowney with an ankle slash knee slash elbow. Mac Jones being up in the air it makes this a little iffy. Um, I tend to think Cleveland may be able to beat them even with Mac Jones. But if Mac's not going to go, I'm going to take the Browns. I'll throw an asterisk on this one, right? You know, I'll put the asterisk just for fun. But either way, I'd probably be picking the Cleveland Browns. Our next 1 o'clock matchup is between Who Day and Who Dat. As the Cincinnati Bengals head to Nolens to take on the New Orleans Saints. The Bengals have three listed as questionable, and they're all pretty significant. Wide receiver T. Higgins with an ankle, tight end Hayden Hurst with a groin, and lineman Jonah Williams with a knee. The Saints going to be without wide receivers Jarvis Landry and Michael Thomas with lower leg injuries, as well as Deontay Hardy, also with a lower leg injury, uh, D-lineman Peyton Turner with a chest, and Marshawn Lattimore, a corner with an abdomen. Questionable again, Jameis Winston with the infamous multiple back fractures. Uh, rookie Chris Olave at wide receiver with a concussion. Offensive lineman Calvin Throck, excuse me, Thockmorton, high quality name, with a hip. D lineman Malcolm Roach with an ankle. And two DBs, Paulson Adebo with a knee. And safety Marcus May with a rib. I just realized as I was going through that, this is a Joe Burrow return to New Orleans game. And I would probably bet it all to take that car payment you didn't put on the other game or the other uh, Buccaneers future, put it on the Bengals, put it on Joe Burrow stats in this one. I'm taking the Bengals to win this one on the road. Our next game is Tom Brady heading to not Heinz Field as the Buccaneers head up to Pittsburgh to take on the Steelers. Uh, the Buccaneers going to be without defensive lineman Akeem Hicks with a foot injury, two DBs Sean Murphy bunting with a quad and safety Logan Ryan with a foot Doubtful wide receiver Julio Jones with a knee and questionable safety Mike Edwards with an elbow injury. The Steelers defensive backfield is beat up in this game. Out for this one. Cameron Sutton at corner with a hammy. Akilo Witherspoon with a hammy at corner as well. Levi Wallace at corner with a concussion and Minka Fitzpatrick with a knee. D-end DeMarvin Leal will also miss this one with a knee and Pat Fryermuth at tight end with a concussion. I'm taking the Bucks in this one. There are way too many injuries in that secondary, and the Bucks are coming off of a near defeat, which means they'll probably win this one fairly handedly. Rough landing spot for Kenny Pickett. Really rough, man. I mean, I, I thought he played all right in that game against the Jets. Against Buffalo, what can you do? And then against Tampa, yikes. I can see why they were holding him back a little. Uh, our next matchup is the Deion Sanders Bowl, though I guess you could have that with plenty of teams. San Francisco 49ers head to Atlanta to take on the Falcons. 49ers going to be without quite a few names on their defensive side. Eric Armstead going to miss this one, as well as Javon Kinlaw, Emmanuel Mosley with a knee, Jimmy Ward with a hand, and Trent Williams on the O-line. Questionable, another O-lineman, Aaron Banks with a knee, D-lineman Nick Bosa with a groin, and tight end Tyler Croft. Falcons going to be without just one, linebacker Michael Walker with a groin injury. Questionable, Kyle Pitts with a hammy, Lineman Elijah Wilkinson with a knee and linebacker Eddie Ogundji, Ogundeji, excuse me, 
with a shoulder injury. The Niners win this one. Should be pretty easily. But then again, Falcons have been putting up a fight. It would shock me, but I'll take 49ers on the road. Next, we've got a, well, I was going to say a, a green showdown, but that's that's really kind of lame. I could do better than that. Um, the New York Jets head to Lambeau to take on the Packers. The Packers are probably going to be angry after that loss to the Giants. The Jets going to be without DN Jermaine Johnson the second with an ankle. Questionable life tackle, Dwayne Brown with a shoulder. Packers going to be without linebacker Tipa Galay with a hammy and wide receiver Christian Watson with a hammy as well. Questionable linebacker Rashawn Gary with a toe. The Packers win this one. Should be fairly easily. Next, our final 1 o'clock kick. The Minnesota Vikings head to Miami to take on the Dolphins in the Teddy Bridgewater Bowl. Another bowl that should have a couple more teams. The Vikings going to be without linebacker DJ Wanham with an illness and questionable running back Alexander Madison with a shoulder. The Dolphins, reportedly Tua had cleared protocol, but he's out in this game with a concussion slash ankle injury. Doubtful cornerback Cater Kohu with an oblique. Questionable Raheem Mostert in the backfield with a knee. Tight end Durham Smythe with a hammy. Offensive lineman Teron Armstead with a toe and DB Elijah Campbell with a foot. This is a weird one because... If both teams were completely healthy, I'm taking Miami. I don't know what Teddy's going to give them. I think Teddy's good enough to beat this Vikings team. I think this Dolphins team should be good enough to win. I don't know. Usually the Vikings don't win big games. I was leaning Vikings on this one. This is a very iffy week out of me. But I'm going to I'm gonna go back on it, and I'm going to take the Dolphins to win this one at home. Next, we head to the 405 block where the Carolina Panthers head to L.A. to take on the Rams. Panthers going to be without wide receiver LaVisca Chenault with a hammy. Corner Stanley Thomas Oliver III with a thigh. Doubtful Baker Mayfield, though, I mean, if you're a Panther fan, it is what it is. Uh, Questionable wide receiver Robbie Anderson who has an illness. Offensive lineman Cameron Irving with a groin. Linebacker Frankie Louvu with a shoulder and a trio of corners. C.J. Henderson with a knee, J.C. Horner, excuse me, J.C. Horn with a rib injury, and Dante Jackson with an ankle. Rams going to be without Cam Akers, listed as a personal matter. We discussed that before, uh, as well as center Brian Allen with a knee. Questionable, their backup quarterback, John Walford, with a neck. Cooper Cup with a foot injury, Tyler Higby with an ankle, Aaron Donald with a foot, and corner Kobe Durant with a hammy. Also, just Kobe Durant is just bizarre to read every time. It's spelled C-O-B-I-E, but like, Wow, what a crossover. Um, Anyway, huge injuries potentially there with Higby, Cup, and Donald. I'm going to take the Rams in this one, but usually when a team fires their head coach, they get a little bit of a momentum boost. I don't know. This one's iffy. Taking the Rams because I don't know who's going to be under center for the Carolina Panthers. Next, we've got a battle of the birds, my favorite kind of battle, as the Cardinals head to Seattle to take on the Seahawks. Cardinals going to be without James Conner, without running back Darrell Williams, corner Trayvon Mullen, and their kicker Matt Prater is going to miss another one. Questionable, two on the O-line, Max Garcia and Rodney Hudson, one on the D-line in Richard Lawrence, and corner Byron Murphy. Seahawks going to be without wide receiver Penny Hart and the aforementioned Rashad Penny. It's like playing chain reaction. Uh, Doubtful, offensive lineman Gabe Jackson and defensive lineman Al Woods. Questionable, two wide receivers, D. Eskridge and Marquise Goodwin, D. lineman Shelby Harris, corner Artie Burns, and safety Joey Blunt. I'm honestly going to take Seattle in this game. Uh, this feels like a game the Cardinals should win, but 
I don't know what we're going to get out of them on a, on a weekly basis at this point. So, you know what? Give me Seattle. I mean, Seattle, last week against the Saints, they wound up losing, but they put up a heck of a fight. I mean, Gino goes for 268 and three touchdowns, and that's not enough. You give up 40 to the Saints, you should probably give up 40 to the Cardinals. I'm thinking they're not going to because they're at home. Give me Gino. Why not? Next, we've got the game of the week. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Our lone 425 kick. The Buffalo Bills head to Arrowhead looking for revenge. Taking on the Kansas City Chiefs. They're going to be without wide receiver Jake Kumaro with an ankle. Questionable D-tackle Jordan Phillips with a hammy. Chiefs going to be without three on the defensive side themselves. Tershawn Wharton on the D-line with a knee. Corner Rashad Fenton with a hammy. And safety Brian Cook, who's in the concussion protocol. Now... I've gone back and forth on this because Kansas City has been much more impressive to me this year so far than I thought they would be. However, the Bills went out and punched the Rams in the mouth because in their mind, they should have been in the Super Bowl. And in their mind, if they went to the Super Bowl, they would have punched them in the mouth and they'd be wearing rings on their fingers. I think this Bills team is going to come in angry are they going to come in over-aggressive? Is it going to set them back here and there? I think it might. However, Kansas City does have a pension for going quiet in the beginning sometimes or having little dormant parts on their offense throughout the game. I'm going to take Buffalo to get their revenge, setting up a rematch eventually, fingers crossed, in the postseason. We have an NFC East battle on Sunday Night Football as the Dallas Cowboys head to Lincoln Financial to take on the undefeated Eagles. A battle for first place in the division. Cowboys at 4-1, Eagles at 5-0. Though technically the Giants could be in play there as well. Cowboys going to be without running back Rico Dowdle with an ankle. Questionable, Dak Prescott with a thumb injury. Could be the game he comes back for, though I doubt I'd want to rush him back for a game at Philly, especially this Philly. Uh, C.D. Lamb questionable with a hip and Jason Peters with a chest injury. Uh, two on the defensive side, that's all for Philly. Josh Job listed as questionable with a shoulder, and Janarius Robinson on the D-line with an ankle. I'm taking Philly in this game. I think if Cooper Rush goes, Philly's going to win. I think if Dak goes, it gets spicy. It gets interesting, but I think they might be rushing him back. Give me Philly to win this one, though the X-factor, as in all Dallas games, is Micah Parsons, because he has the athleticism to really change the way things go around Jalen Hurts. He can outrun him. Or at the very least, he can keep up with him. Let's see what Dallas can do schematically to try and neutralize Hurts. I got Philly winning this one at home. Our final game of the week, Monday Night Football. The injured Russell Wilson leads the Denver Broncos to L.A. to take on the Chargers. Um, the Broncos going to be without safety Caden Stearns with a hip and linebacker Josie Jewell with a knee. Questionable running back Melvin Gordon with a neck and rib injury, which is huge considering, remember... No Javante Williams, done for the year. Uh, on the O-line, two, Dalton Reisner with a back and Billy Turner with a knee. Tight end Eric Soybert with a thigh. Linebacker Jonathan Cooper with a hammy. Uh, another offensive lineman, why is he listed at the end? Quinn Miners with a hammy as well. And DB Damari Mathis with a knee. Doubtful, Keenan Allen with a hamstring injury. Read a report before he was maybe targeting, you know, targeting a... Uh, a return this week, we'll see. Questionable offensive lineman Trey Pipkins with a knee. I'm taking the Chargers. They've got too much firepower, and Russell Wilson is hurt coming into this game. Give me the Chargers to win this one at home. Next, we've got 
our Thursday night game. I won't forget it. You won't forget it. Oh, we just we forgot the jingle. The da, 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 for Monday Night Football. My mistake. Thursday night of Week 7, our final game of the week. The New Orleans Saints, led potentially by Jameis, though on a short week, I'm not sure, head to Arizona to take on the Cardinals as we push towards the return of DeAndre Hopkins eventually here. Um, not knowing who's going to be under center for New Orleans is a little concerning coming into this because if it's the Red Rifle, I'm not sure. Give me the Cardinals to win this one at home. And that'll bring us to the end of this week's Pick'em portion and then to the end of this week's episode. Worth noting, we started the year off a little rough in the Pick'em portion, but the last two weeks, 10-6, and 11-5, a little bit more where we want to be. Let's see if that goes well this week. Granted, now that I mentioned that, we're probably going to go 8-8 eight eight again, so you might not want to take these picks to your bookie. Either way... That'll bring us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you for joining us, whether it's your first time or your 145th time. We appreciate you coming around, having you on board here at the Necessary Roughness Podcast, presented by Last Word on Sports. Join us again next weekend for the following episode. And as always, I'm your host, Nicholas Donatic, signing off.